0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. I'm Jennifer Waits.
1: Hi, I'm Paul rees Mandel.
2: Hello, everybody. I'm Eric Klein.
0: On the show today, we're traveling back in time. It's March 1932, and a horrible crime has just occurred, the kidnapping of the 20-month-old son of famed aviator Charles Lindbergh and his wife, Anne Morrow Lindbergh. Imagine that you were living in the United States in 1932 and wanted to follow breaking news about this story. If it were 2021, the answer might be Twitter or the internet. But in the early 1930s, it was obviously a very different media landscape, largely consisting of print journalism, newsreels, and radio. Our guest, Thomas Doherty, joins us to provide historical context and shed light on radio's role in the media frenzy surrounding the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby and subsequent trial, and why it was a turning point for how breaking news was covered. Thomas Doherty, professor of American studies at Brandeis, is the author of Little Lindy is Kidnapped How the Media Covered the Crime of the Century. Thomas, thanks for joining us today on Radio Survivor.
1: It's a pleasure, Jennifer.
0: So, the 1932 kidnapping of Lindbergh's baby was a massive story, and your book title describes it as the crime of the century. Can you give us a snapshot of that crime? Because I'm assuming that. Not everybody in 2021 might know the details the way they did back in the
1: 1930s. Uh, Yeah, Uh, I think the first thing to know about this is uh, who Charles Lindbergh was. And most people probably have a sense of he was the famed aviator who flew solo nonstop from New York to Paris in 1927, and he was kind of a big hero. Uh, But one of the things I had to capture uh, in the introductory chapter was to give people a sense of just the sheer scale of Lindbergh's fame and admiration. Uh, We live in a world of superlatives and hyperbole where everything's the greatest, the best, the biggest. Uh, Somebody spikes a football in an end zone and he's a hero. Uh, In 1927, in May, uh, Lindbergh was the most beloved, admired, adored person on the planet. He received a level of adulation that I think is fair to say was unique and uh, certainly unprecedented in the 20th century. And it happened not just because of the the heroism and enterprise and audacity of what he did, uh, because everybody really did think he was going to die, that this was an impossible feat. And to have this lone 25-year-old American come out of nowhere- Did you mention what he
2: did? I don't think you did. I think we're taking it for granted. He flew across the Atlantic in a plane.
1: Yeah, uh, a solo, nonstop, alone, and uh, somebody and everyone offered. everyone knew it. A, you,
2: it would be ridiculous in in the in the twentieth century to have to explain to an audience why Lindbergh was a hero. Yeah, oh,
1: right. Uh, at, at least at, at the time, I, I usually have to recreate it for my uh, for my students. Uh, and even if you know who Charles Lindbergh is, uh, what you really need to render to appreciate the sort of the magnitude of the disaster felt by Americans in 1932 when his uh, baby son is kidnapped, is that we all identified with Lindbergh. We knew who he was. And if you think of other crimes in the 20th century, uh, we, we didn't know the victims. So even if we felt we knew Sharon Tate or the people O.J. Simpson killed, Uh, If we imaginatively identify with them after the crime, we hadn't emotionally invested with them uh, before the crime. And that was what was so special about Lindbergh. And of course, it's all related to media. When he flies across the Atlantic in 1927, radio, our topic, hadn't yet become the medium that connected Americans uh, in a kind of hive mind. It was sort of the last great story that the newspapers and the newspaper extras had to themselves. Uh, So when Lindbergh takes off from Roosevelt Field on Long Island uh, for the next 33 and a half hours, Americans are just captured by this magnificent story that they didn't know would capture them that way. Uh, in, in the 20th century, we've all had those moments since of shared, simultaneous, universal experience that the, the broadcast medium gave to us. So for my father's generation, it was Pearl Harbor. For my generation, it was JFK. For another generation, it was 9-11. Uh, but in 1927, people hadn't had that experience of being universally, simultaneously connected to something. So when Lindbergh takes off, there, we have shortwave radio on ships that are waiting out uh, off the coast of Newfoundland to see him. So they can wire back the information, which will then mostly be put into newspaper extras. A few people had radio, but it, it isn't the medium of choice that connects us, yes, in 27. And for the next 18 to 20 hours, as he's flying across the frozen Atlantic, nobody knows what's happening, but Everybody is connected to the story. There is no other story in America except Limburg. And so there are all kinds of uh, uh, anecdotes of, uh, uh, sort of the evocative power of this for that generation, where people are really sitting down to dinner that Friday night and saying, offering up a prayer to Limburg. There's a famous story of a fight at Madison Square Garden where 25,000 fight fans stand up and solemnly have a moment of silence for Lindbergh. Nobody cares about the fight. Everybody's just wondering, how is Lindbergh? And then he's spotted by ships off the coast of Ireland. That news comes electronically back to the, uh, to America. Newspapers, print extras, Lindbergh spotted. But is he going to make it to the last leg uh, to La Beauger Field in Paris? And when he lands in Paris, pandemonium erupts. You know? Not just by the 100,000 Frenchmen who are there to wait him, uh, wait! waiting for him, but throughout America. Uh, Lindbergh uh, behaves perfectly, impeccably. He 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 looks like Gary Cooper. You know, he's, he's slender, handsome. He behaves with becoming modesty and grace. He's everything we in the jazz age would want of a traditional American hero. And we think of the jazz age as an age of ballyhoo and, uh, you know, false gods and advertising. And Lindbergh's the real thing. So people latch onto him as a hero, in a way that is beyond comprehension. He, when he comes back, he gets the biggest ticker tape parade ever given to anybody ever, and since you know, bigger than the uh, the soldiers coming back from World War One. And people just go bananas in a way that's uh, yeah. I I feel like I'm babbling, but it, it's a uh, you really need to just appreciate that moment. Uh, and even at the time people knew that it was, uh, they were in the grip of something that was historic and kind of almost hysterical. So uh, you know, radio comment, not radio, but, uh, uh, newspaper commentators and cultural critics, uh, self consciously examine this moment. So in that context, what happens five years later and two years later, Lindbergh marries Anne Murrow, uh, uh, a uh, 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 you know, rich, lovely, talented, uh, a quiet literary kind of girl, very intelligent, who becomes uh his helpmate and a uh, a terrific aviator in her own right. We think of Amelia Earhart, but uh Anne Morrow Lindbergh who became his helpmate, uh navigator, radio man, co-pilot uh flying some of the most dangerous routes in uh 19 uh, uh 30 and 31 uh is the princess for the great prince Lindbergh and then of course everybody is waiting for the princeling for the child. And so, so when are, little... So,
0: so they're sort of the celebrities, you know, the way you're painting it, they're the celebrities of the day who everybody uh, knows or, about. Or I
1: always like to use the word fame uh, because celebrity, like we think of the Cardassians are celebrities, right? Right. And the, famous de- the famous definition by Daniel Borsten uh, a celebrity is somebody who's famous for being famous. Uh, Lindbergh earned his fame, right? He, he got his fame by doing something extraordinary, So, uh, yeah. And uh, there are accounts uh, like in the newsreels for the next four or five years. Every time Lindbergh appeared in the newsreels and got a close up, the audiences would applaud just as a a signal. Yeah, we love this guy. We remember him. So it's in that context when on the night of March 1st, 1932, uh, the Lindbergh baby is kidnapped from the second floor nursery of his home in Hopewell, New Jersey, in the early evening hours somewhere between 8 and 10 o'clock at night uh from his uh, uh nursery taken right out of his crib ransom note is left in the bedroom and the report comes out first the uh New Jersey police issue a bulletin AP picks it up and then and this is the radio angle I found so so interesting i believe I could say, and maybe since you're all radio geeks, you can gain say me if um, this isn't true. But I believe this is the first time in American history that people did what they will do forever after. And that is instead of walking down to the corner newsstand to get the newspaper or to go outside if you live in the city to get the newspaper extra that the boy is hawking on the street, extra, extra, read all about it. This is the first time in American history people reach for the dial and turned on the set all right and that's what we will do forever after when there's breaking news we want we'll go to our electronic broadcasting device first it was radio then tv now it's probably your twitter feed or whatever but you're turning on an electronic device to get the news instantaneously uh you don't want to wait even an hour to get the newspaper extra and uh that's March of uh, 32. And I believe that's the first time something like that happened. And that's and you, because what?
0: Oh, and, and and you're kind of alluding to this. Maybe talk a bit about the the media landscape at the time. So, you know, before this point, you're referencing extra editions of the newspaper. Um, right. How how did people get how did people follow breaking news? Before this well, story. in the
1: in the twenties, typically you'd have a newspaper extra. Of course, the print medium had been around uh, publishing sensational, salacious news that we wanted since the eighteen forties, when uh, New York newspapers realized that uh, people maybe aren't as interested in being uplifted or reading about the the shipping reports coming into the port of New York as they are with the uh, the juiciest murders that could happen in the big city. And that's the revolution in you know tabloid journalism and print journalism and throughout the nineteenth century and early part of the twentieth century uh newspapers thrive in the big cities. New York has at least twelve daily newspapers, major daily newspapers uh, at this time and it doesn't even count the uh you know, the yiddish language german language, Italian language. Uh, newspapers that cater to their uh, ethnic and linguistic groups, and how many uh, it, how
0: many editions were paper? Because this is something I was thinking about recently. When I was younger, I remember a morning and an evening paper. Yeah. Uh, so, how many editions of the newspaper might come out in a given day? Well, it 18- depends on the news
1: story. Uh, it, say at least three, as you mentioned: a morning, uh, 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 midday. And afternoon, and a lot of papers had what they called the Bulldog Edition. This is all jargon, by the way, that's uh, almost dead because we no longer occupy that uh, media landscape. But the Bulldog Edition was the last edition of the newspaper in the late evening. And so, typically, if Dad were a news junkie and he wanted to get out of the house away from mom, he'd take a walk down to the newsstand. To get the bulldog—that is the last edition of the newspaper. The, the way we'd turn into uh, tune into the eleven o'clock news, and so that's how people got like normative news. Now, if there were a big breaking story, they'd publish a special edition called an extra, and uh, you know that's the and newsboys would hawk those on the streets. So that's how I got my immediate news up until the early 1930s when radio reaches a level of penetration in the culture where basically now everybody has access to a radio. Uh, so in 1932, it's like 50 million people were considered radio listeners, but that's probably uh, uh, under place, it out of uh, roughly 120 million Americans. And then by 34, uh, surveys say seven out of 10 families own a radio, right? So it's become the transmission belt for the culture at around this time. And what's so interesting to me is that radio reaches this level of penetration. Right at the moment, we have a news story, the Lindbergh kidnapping, that Americans have ravenous interest in. Uh, the equivalent uh, might be the JFK assassination in television. That te- Television has that nine out, of, nine out of 10 families have TV by 63. And television had just reached the level of technical proficiency where they can do live pickups from Dallas, New York, Washington, and things are still kind of glitchy, and they're playing, you know, they're mo- you know, playing it by the seat of their pants. But television sort of matures as our transmission belt, and in '32, we now have the moment when this incredible story meets media penetration.
2: So how how did radio stations in 1932 report on the Lindbergh? Baby kidnapping, um, especially since you're mentioning like remote broadcasts of television. I'm I'm curious about yeah. how how they were able to utilize the technology of speaking into microphones to cover this breaking news event that there seemed to be a, an insatiable appetite for in in America. I can imagine them uh, talking themselves in circles. Like how how much news was there really to report? Well, and, well, uh, as,
0: as Eric yep. is saying that you know, just doing research ahead of time, it seemed like. There this case had so many twists and turns and oh, God, at least yeah. 13 ransom notes, I guess. So, um, you know, along with Eric, you know, how is radio? It seems like there's a lot of um, breaking news that kept coming about it, that people would be hanging. Which they on. weren't
1: reporting because Lindbergh wants uh, the behind the scenes negotiations kept secret. Ah, So that's something that probably wouldn't happen today. Uh, that sense of cooperation and the sense of journalistic deference, to, not just journalistic, but the law enforcement deference to the heroic figure of Charles Lindbergh. Nobody wants to do anything that could potentially jeopardize the life of the baby. Uh, well, radio uh, in those days uh, basically ripped off their news from the newspapers and they would you know, uh, basically read uh, the announcer would read the headlines in the newspaper and then say, for further details uh, to soothe the, uh, the newspaper's ego, uh, be sure to consult your morning newspaper. Uh, but what happens, yeah, well, a, cur- a couple curious things happen. First, the night of the kidnapping, radio goes with the, uh, the AP bulletin and reads the story. So a lot of people hear it first on radio and they don't believe it because radio isn't sort of a trusted news disseminating medium yet. And so they're not real. Some people aren't going to believe it until they see it read in the newspapers. That night, our interest is so great. that uh, You tell students this, they find it hard to believe. But uh, broadcasting actually went off at midnight or one o'clock. And if you're of a certain age, you actually might remember those antediluvian pre-cable days in which the major networks would do a sign off at uh, one or two o'clock, depending on your market. They'd play the national anthem, and then it'd be static electricity on Channel 4 until they started again at 6 or 7 o'clock the next morning. And that's what radio, that's a pattern in radio. But what radio did is they kept the transmitters on all night just in case something broke in the Lindbergh case. Hmm. So you get static, and then maybe the announcer would break in. There was no entertainment programming. But just in case something happened, so they wouldn't have to wait 30 minutes for the transmitters to warm up. This is something also that people don't understand about uh, broadcasting, uh, both uh, the radio transmitters and television had to like warm up. So when CBS first announced the Kennedy assassination, uh, you probably know, uh, they just put a a placard on the screen until the cameras could warm up so they could actually break in with a live Hmm. image. I know you tell, you tell undergraduates this and they think you're talking about the Peloponnesian war. Thomas (laughs) Doherty.
2: It occurs to me though. uh, I would like to talk a little bit about, you mentioned the radio hosts when the Lindbergh baby was kidnapped would um, rip and read as they say in radio. They would, they would just take what newspapers had reported and, and read it. Um, The reason why newspaper newspapers had the news is because they paid journalists to go get it and to write it down. Right. And this is still the case today. Television, cable news, more often than not, has to rely on newspapers to write the stories before they can report them. And I think, uh, you know, as near as I can tell, it's simply just uh, the economics of how many jobs there are, how many reporters are getting paid to go report the news. When did radio start reporting, not just Right, uh, right around out? this
1: time, because... And uh, this is sort of an unintentional consequence of newspapers and the uh, wire services getting mad at radio for ripping off them their stuff. They uh, called an embargo on this—that we're not going to sell you our, our our wire service reporting anymore because you're you're scooping us. You're reading this stuff before it comes out uh, in the uh, in the tabloid because nothing can beat the speed of electricity. This has the unintended consequence of the radio stations developing their own journalist. And they will actually send people into the field and they will report live for the first time. And sometimes they will make mistakes and break scoops that are false or or just communicate uh, uh, misinformation. But one of the consequences of the Lindbergh case is we are now developing this new species of journalist who's a broadcasting journalist uh, getting the the news on on his own because the newspapers are jealous of radio's speed because nothing can beat the speed of electricity and they kind of realize they're being come they're being antiquated now or becoming antiquated at least they're going to have to fill a different media niche than they have filled historically because of the, the Lindbergh kidnapping.
0: I I think it's interesting that you have sort of two parts of the story from a media perspective. You have the kidnapping and the search for the baby, and then you have the trial. Yeah. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about how radio was covering the trial, because I understand that they had some constraints compared to, say, print journalists.
1: Oh, oh, abs- absolutely. It, well, uh, if you want to, f- uh, uh, we can flash forward right to the trial and 35, but there are a couple of media moments that are very powerful, and I think uh, they're the first time they happen. And the other moment, the baby is kidnapped on March 1st, and then tragically, horribly, on May 12th, the body of the baby is discovered less than five miles from the Hopewell home. Almost certainly killed the night of the kidnapping. And that news breaks on the AP wires uh, and radio reports it, but they report it before the newspapers go to press. And I think a lot of us have had these broadcasting moments uh, for one generation, it would be Kennedy for another generation, 9-11, where you've got this weird vertiginous sense of unreality as the news is coming in, but you're still watching the Today Show, Right or you're still watching the afternoon soap opera, and then this news comes in from Dallas, right? And there's kind of this bizarre disconnect between normal entertainment and the bulletin that disrupts your life. And I believe the Lindbergh baby death, the the notification that Lindbergh baby death is the first time people felt that. And they talk about it, that uh, the, the bulletin breaking into normal, mundane, banal programming and then going back to the pr- normal banal programming as we're trying to get new, new news. And uh, there's a famous line from the cultural historian Frederick Lewis Allen uh, when he says that uh, there are a lot of Americans whose memories of the 1930s are otherwise dim uh, and vague who remember exactly where they were when they heard the piece of news about the Lindbergh baby being death, dead. Uh and after that, the whole case, uh, all the stuff that we couldn't report the previous 10 weeks comes out. Uh, and I guess before getting to the trial, the other radio moment is we have to remember everybody in America, when they hear the news, of course, is, is stricken with grief and heartbreak. But that turns on a dime, like a snap of the fingers. Will Rogers talks about this, the, uh, the famous uh, syndicated columnist uh, and humorist. Says it turns on a dime from anger and just the seething need for revenge against the monster who had killed the baby of Charles Lindbergh, and for the next two and a half years, we're looking for him. You know, I mean, it's that long before, in September of 1934, he's finally captured, and uh, he's captured by a, a kind of a radio moment in a way, because there's a very famous commentator named Walter Winchell, who I think if your people are listening to your station, they probably know who Walter Winchell is. He was a, a, a probably the most famous radio journalist, commentator, gossip monger of his day. And Winchell goes on the air. He's got really good contacts with J. Edgar Hoover, who's head of the FBI at the time, and he and Hoover scratch each other's backs. That is, Hoover gives Winchell scoops, and Winchell tells America... Just what a wonderful essential lawman J. Edgar Hoover really is. And uh, Winchell has gotten news that the ransom money is starting to turn up around New York. And he starts criticizing the bankers in New, uh, in New York for not being careful about you know, tra- you know, uh, finding the numbers of the ransom money when the, uh, the money comes into their bank. They kind of wait and don't remember the people. And there's a bank manager who hears that and says, by God, I'm going to go in on Monday or Tuesday morning and go through those notes. And he finds one. He gets a, uh, gets a hit, which is traced back to a couple of gas station attendants who uh, were passed a, uh, uh, a $10 bill, Lindbergh ransom money. And on the back of the bill, the gas station attendant has the presence of mind to write the license number of the car. And that's how they get. The uh, kidnap murder of the Lindbergh baby, Bruno Richard Hauptmann, in September of 1934. Then into the trial, if you want to go there, Jennifer.
0: Let's let's go to the trial. Because my understanding is that radio, there's certain things that radio wasn't allowed to do. And so they they take a very creative approach to yeah. how they present the results of the trial, which sort of reminds me of, if, you know, if I think about it, modern day oh, yeah. true crime it's... podcasts.
1: Oh, at, Yeah. Or the O.J. Court TV—I mean, whatever precedent or uh, a successor you want to think about—absolutely, of course. Radio wants to cover the trial of the century, and they figured they could do it fairly unobtrusively. You just put mics into the courtroom, and everybody in America would listen because now we have nationwide hookups on CBS or NBC, uh, Blue or Red Network, or the Mutual Radio Network. All of would uh, to have just uh, one mic there. And, and come to a pool arrangement uh, so radio the, the radio equipment wouldn't be too obtrusive and disrupt the dignity and the decorum of the American uh, court system. But the governor of New Jersey uh, says immediately once the uh, uh, Houtman is extradited to uh, New Jersey that there'll be no radio pre- uh, allowed into the courtroom. So there's no live recording on radio of the courtroom proceeding, the trial of Bruno Richard Hauptmann, who is this uh, illegal German immigrant, uh, unemployed carpenter, who's uh, accused of kidnapping the Lindbergh baby. And there's a lot of controversy about whether Hauptmann did it or not. You can go on the web and go down all kinds of rabbit holes. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, <laughs> the web being the web, right? Uh, but uh, I think the consensus opinion, uh, and you can always disagree with the consensus, is that Hauptmann committed the crime. Uh, people who believe that concede that he might have had an accomplice, and we've never found out who that person might have been, you know, somebody to hold the ladder, assist in the crime. So
2: tell us, uh, about, the, tell us about how radio got around this challenge. They wanted to bring microphones into the courtroom.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, what radio did is they did what you would expect, which is they have uh, reenactments, of the trial testimony, they hire actors and actresses to reenact the transcripts of the trial live on radio, and then they have talking head commentators and uh, uh, going over the uh, uh, the trial and uh, uh, kind of doing the post game analysis every day and if you're old enough to remember the OJ case in uh, 94 ninety five uh, you know exactly what i'm talking about that's pretty much the same. Pattern, although of course we had live coverage of the OJ case. There was no live coverage on radio of the uh, uh, the Houtman trial. So, they, so they'd reenact
2: it the next day.
1: Yeah, or or that night. Okay. Uh, they, wow. they'd, they'd actually get the transcripts that night. And also they'd do live uh, bulletins. So you could have a guy in the courthouse or outside the courthouse giving the live uh, you know, what, what just happened. But they weren't allowed into the courtroom. And, and uh, of course, radio was very mad about that, but they had to make the, the various, uh, uh, you know, the comp- uh, the compromises they did. Uh, oftentimes, they would have reporters who were in the courtroom talking on radio live that night. Now, one of the, uh, you know, uh, difficult things in doing a project like this, and you guys being radio historians know this, is there's no live transcription disk of this, so with the exception of a few archival finds, I had to rely on uh, newspaper reporting and uh, contemporary trade press reporting about how the case went down and how it was covered on radio and I uh, would uh always uh, prefer and uh, basically used the uh, the reporting at the time to evoke this because as you know. People's media m- memories can be a little fuzzy and sometimes actually inaccurate. The uh, the most famous example is the, uh, as some of you might know, the uh, the author Morris Sendak, the famous children's author, "Where the Wild Things Are." He was, uh, as a young boy of four or five, he was haunted by the Lindbergh case because he figured if uh, you know the Lindbergh baby could be kidnapped, uh, a you know a, a a poor child like him could be kidnapped and harmed. And he was really haunted with this, and if you look at wild, the cover of where the wild things are, that little boy in the uh the gray sleeping suit that's the Lindbergh baby, mm. and he actually has a couple of other uh, uh cartoon echoes of the Lindbergh baby case and Sendok swears that he remembers Ann Lindbergh going on radio and reading the uh, the baby's uh diet you know she famously released a fairly extensive uh list of uh food that the baby ate and medicine that the baby took and he swears he heard her on the radio she never went on the radio in 1932 uh neither neither of Lindbergh's made a personal appeal the way i think you know parents might Hmm. uh today uh and so he clearly remembers an actress or is conflating it with a movie or or something right Uh, so yeah but you you can imagine
2: an actress performing the role of the baby Lindbergh's mom on the radio for a child right. listening to the radio, why would they make that determination between fiction and reality? I mean, that's... Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It, 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 it's uh, But it is interesting, isn't that's it? That's wonderful. I wonder if
2: is... a lot of the contemporary <laughs> contemporaneous newspaper reporting that you were able to um, become informed about how radio was covering the Lindbergh baby kidnapping, I wonder if some of these... Uh, people were just uh listening to the radio typing out the news they learned is that yeah. do you do you know this is that what was happening
1: well they had uh the, the press always had a privilege because they were on the scene and then could write up their stories and the press unlike the radio journalists who were just starting at 32 had long-term relations with the cops in New Jersey so there were a particular a couple of AP guys who scooped everybody uh because they were just uh wired to the local uh, police and political class, uh, and in fact, that's how the uh, an AP reporter famously got the scoop of the Lindbergh baby's uh, death. Uh, that he, he, he was talking directly to the governor, who got the word from uh, the uh, the chief of the New Jersey police, whose name was Norman Schwarzkopf, who was the father, of course, of the uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf of Desert Storm fame. Uh, his son was a lot better general than the father was a. A, a police investigator. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> yeah, There's so the many, Jennifer, so many yeah. interesting
0: twists and turns and connections that you're bringing to oh, other people in popular culture. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to go back. I'm curious why radio was not allowed in the courtroom in the first place. Well,
1: you might find this hard to believe given how eager lawyers are today for media publicity. <laughs> but at the time, uh, the courtroom was considered a Dignified temple of justice, and the sensational presence of uh, 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 newspaper uh, photographers and radio uh, would uh, see, uh, seem to disrupt the uh, course of American justice. Okay? That was the model that people had. Uh, I mean, believe it or not, right? Because uh, you know, the most dangerous place to be is you know between a news, uh, between a television camera and a. And a, a lawyer these days, uh, but that was the that was the model in the uh, in the mid nineteen thirties. So uh, the governor, uh, I think, going along with that model. But the interesting twist here is the judge, a guy named Thomas uh, uh, Trenchard, uh, a very dignified, old school kind of judge. Uh, he was so old school he actually had a spittoon near his uh, a judicial bench, and so he would like you know. Spit his tobacco juice out uh, every so often, but he's uh, uh, usually considered, unlike say, Lance Ito with the O.J. trial, uh, considered to have run the case perfectly with decorum, fair to both both sides. And he's sort of oddly, and maybe this is—I think it might be—and I'm just kind of spitballing here uh, because I don't know this for a fact. But I think you know how judges are—that this is my courtroom, damn it—it's not your courtroom. And the, uh, the governor, when he preempted the judge's decision about radio, this, uh, the judge decides to allow newsreel cameras into the courtroom, which are far more disruptive than radio would have been. But he does it under the stipulation that the cameras cannot film during actual testimony. So when the judge is on the bench or there's a witness testifying, they cannot film. So there are two handheld sound cameras One in the ante room or a a camera in the ante room, stationary camera, where witnesses can reread and restate their uh, testimony before the newsreel camera after they give it. Then there's a circulating camera, which is taking crowd scenes and local color scenes in the courtroom when testimony is not going on. And there's a camera in the balcony that's taking footage as well. Now, of course, newsreel guys being newsreel guys, at a certain point, they cannot resist turning the camera on during live testimony, right? Yeah, and yeah of course, right? And it's quiet enough now because they've, they've, got, they've got it soundproofed and they, they, they've uh, uh, used a, uh, uh, different gears to make the camera very quiet. They attach a microphone very close to the witness chair, right? And so... When Ann Murrow comes on the stand, by far the most heartbreaking emotional moment. And here's where radio can really come into its own, because the radio reporter, uh, especially a guy named uh, 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 Bo Carter and uh, Gabriel Heater, two uh, radio names at the time, are in the courtroom and they're watching Ann Murrow. And then they come on radio and report very emotionally, what Anne Murrow has testified to. And of course, she's the mother of the child, and she has the baby's sleeping suit in her lap that she's asked to identify. And uh, there's not a dry eye in the courtroom, needless to say. Uh, Anne is a very stoic, kind of old-school female, and uh, she does not shed a tear, but she's the only person in the courtroom who doesn't, right, Uh, when she identifies the baby's uh, clothing. So the cameras are turned on there. Lindbergh testifies about oh. his role. I mean, just
0: back to back to Ann Morrow. So there's yeah. audio captured of her by Newsreel. And so the Newsreel footage that's shown um, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is that footage that's shown in a movie theater between movies? Um and and does any of that audio end up on right. the radio?
1: Yes, it does. And and radio uh, sort of is feeling uh you know, second rate, because the only audio recording of the Lindbergh trial live is from the newsreel audio track, you know, the soundtrack of the newsreels. I don't think I, I, I haven't seen footage of Ann's voice, but or, uh, or Lindbergh's, but uh, who's also photographed. But there's a very colorful witness uh, named James Condon, who played a key role in the ransom negotiation, a, kind of a colorful, blustery guy from the Bronx, who uh, just out of nowhere injects himself into the case. And if you're a Limburg conspiracy person, the the James Condon story is authentically weird. And there there are a lot of uh, crime cases that have little odd twists and turns and detectives will tell you, of course, that's the way life is. There'll be stuff that just will never fit into the, case file to make it a hundred percent perfect it's not like law and order where things wrap up at 10 o'clock and you know all the loose ends are put together but the Lindbergh case has about like 26 of so them. Did, to, <laughs> yeah. did this character
2: does he end up uh taking up some radio time is that why we brought him up uh, Well,
1: th- well well he, he'd be interviewed on the steps of the courtroom and radio would broadcast that but also condon is also the kind of colorful, fun character in an otherwise grim and horrible the case. the Cato
2: Calen, perhaps of the yeah yeah.
1: <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm wondering.
2: So it's 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 interesting because newsreels are allowed into the courtroom by the yeah. judge. The radio no. is not. Newsreels right. can't possibly be as old. As a, they're not that old of a medium at that time, but they're they're older than radio, or at least yes. have more gravitas. It would seem. Um, that part's very interesting. I'm wondering if there's any way to know why. Why did the judge uh, judge? Why did the judge judge that newsreels yeah. are have, have a prestige that's that's that, that a dignity that is that is worthy of his courtroom when when a radio microphone is dirty
1: yeah and i i face this that that same thing eric is how to explain that because the judge doesn't talk about his decision the best that i can do is that the decision to disallow radio was made by the governor there's something
2: there's a he has a political uh and the
1: judge is also reasserting this is my courtroom darn it and uh, that's why he lets and the and the newsreel guys uh go to the judge and lie to him. They say, we'll be totally non-obtrusive. We'll abide by our gentleman's agreement that we won't photograph any uh, live testimony. But when Condon comes on the stand, it's just too irresistible okay. because he's this very dramatic person. And they have audio of him pointing to Bruno Richard Hauptman. You now, very dramatic kind of... the That man was Bruno Richard Hauptman. You know, you know, it's sort of a Perry Mason courtroom moment you couldn't resist. But the the moment... We all really want is when Bruno Hauptmann gets on the stand and the crusading district attorney, a guy named David Lentz, still a very well-known name in uh, New Jersey uh, culture and politics, uh, trying his first case, his first criminal case, is cross-examining Bruno Richard Hauptmann. And that's the dramatic moment that we have all been trained from zillions of Hollywood movies that we want him to break down on the stand and confess He's been a kind of a very stoic, unpleasant, kind of arrogant character, and we all want to see him confess. It, it
2: occurs to me to I wonder what the Limburg case what impact it had on the cultural uh product of, of courtroom dramas. Like yeah. there there had to have been some courtroom drama prior to the Limbrick case, but it sounds like it must have had a huge impact on
1: on how oh, they yeah, were the, the, later the fictional I, I ones. Mean, uh, Oh, yeah. We had loved courtroom drama since at least the turn of the century. And in fact, one of the best reporters on the scene, a woman I really came to love, she was on radio as well, reporting for the New York Evening Journal, a Hearst paper, who uh, gave to my mind uh, the absolute best day-to-day coverage of the Lindbergh trial. It's a woman named Adela Rogers St. John's. Her father was Earl Rogers, who is kind of the I don't know Clarence Darrow of his day, the best courtroom reporter in Ch- in San Francisco. Jennifer, in fact, that's where they came from. The San Francisco Examiner being the uh, the Hearst paper uh, uh, there, and uh, Adela was a hard boiled reporter. She had uh, watched her father in action since the age of nine. She was a real daddy's girl, and and Dad used to take her to all his cases. She didn't get along with her mother. And so she had been in court, you know, watching the best guy in the business for 15 years. And then she goes into journalism and she's a woman. So she can play the female angle the way the boys can. not Did you say that she appeared and, on the radio as well as being a print journalist?
2: Yeah. yeah That's really interesting. Right. So this is yeah. um, you, you've you been telling us, Thomas Doherty, uh, a story about the Lindbergh baby kidnapping and how what kind of how it played out on radio, a, a new medium. In mm-hmm. the United States at the time, and how uh, newspaper reporters as well as newsreel, uh, newsreel news photojournalists photo were sort of out in front of radio at this moment. But it, I, it, of course, some of these print journalists are going to use radio to uh, for their right. own for their own reasons. So, what what can you tell us about Adela Rogers St. John, uh, how how she would use
1: radio? Or, or appear Well, uh, on the radio. she and, and of course, the other uh, big name there is Walter Winchell. They're all engaged in now this cross media pollination. So, uh, you know, Winchell has his syndicated column, which is all over America. He has his national broadcast on Sunday nights and he's in the courtroom as well. Right. And then he also gets into Hollywood, <laughs> you know, he writes Hollywood scripts and he's uh, kind of uh, plays a Hollywood angle himself. And Adela Rogers, St. John, same thing. She's a print journalist who that night is on the nightly radio shows that the New York Herald, uh, New York uh, uh, Evening Journal is broadcasting in tune with the trial. So when the trial ends, they all walk over to a radio uh, uh, transmission booth and have a postmortem, you know, the various reporters. And it's very typical of what TV does today. Did the Hearst
2: papers get a cut? Of this, or is this Adele, oh, Rogers St. John's uh, industry, you know, is, does it benefit? Oh, no, this journalist? is
1: this is all Hearst, because okay. uh, what Hearst has done, t- too, is they've hired the defense attorney, <laughs> Edward Riley. So they they have a, a, a sort of first crack at Big Ed Riley, who's this blustery defense attorney, and they've bought access to uh, uh, Anna Houtman, who is Bruno Houtman's uh, wife. So there was a species of, of female reporter at the time uh, that uh, most of the, the the big newspapers had, and these women went on radio too, and they were called sob sisters. That was the name for this special genre, and typically it'd be a woman who would get close to the widow. Of the uh, Or the future widow of a gangster who is going to be executed or the mother of the gangster who is going to be executed. And, you know, she'd walk into the, the lonely apartment and the picture of the boy and, you know, and, and basically she was supposed to uh, draw tears from her female readership. Uh, and it, it's, uh, I think a lot of, uh, uh, you know, female journalists at the time, and certainly in literature since, uh, think of the term as a little condescending, more than a little condescending, the sob sisters. But Adela Rogers St. John took it as a badge of honor. She said, darn right, I'm a sob sister. I want my readers to feel the emotion of the moment. I want them to be involved. And if I can make them cry, so much the better. So when she writes about Anne Morrow on the stand, you know, people, all, uh, I mean, it's really a, a tour de force of reporting. Uh, she did 15 to 2,000 words on deadline for six weeks. You know, I, I, And there are stories of uh, male editors not going home after the, uh, the day is done until Adela's work would come in over the teletype because they, they were so eager to read uh, her reporting. And she would also be on radio, unfortunately. I couldn't find any of those what sound like fascinating accounts uh, of the radio uh, reporting that night from the New York Herald.
0: You're, you're talking New about, York, uh, Evening Journal. I know, that's unfortunate. I mean, it would be amazing yeah. to hear that um, audio. I'm also struck by, you're talking about people staying late into the newsroom, and you've mentioned that transmitters yeah. on the radio were kept yeah. on all night. People yeah. perhaps were listening to Static until they heard breaking news about the Lindbergh case.
1: In, in 32, yeah, yeah. Um, uh,
0: so, so I'm just curious, like how, I know a big um, tenet of this project of yours is that this really began the era of the 24-hour, or began the idea of a 24-hour news cycle. So maybe if you yeah, could talk more about that.
1: Well, I what I think is the importance of this case, which, remember, uh, goes from, say, you know, 27 with Lindbergh, 32 with the kidnap murder, and then 35 with the trial, is this extended story that we see the three pillars or tributaries of modern media, which is the print, broadcasting, and newsreels, moving image. And of course, broadcasting then becomes television. Those, those three pillars uh, established in covering a case. Okay? And so each of them realizes they have their own niche. So what print gives us is comprehensiveness of coverage, the trial transcripts, illustrations, maps, the, the sort of close textual analysis that you need to really understand the case. And of course, people are absorbed in this case, the way a latter generation is going to be in the uh, uh, absorbed in the OJ case. And Eric mentioned Cato Kalin, right? So uh, if you're of a certain age, you know exactly who he's talking about, right? But if you're maybe a little uh, younger, you know, who's Cato Kalin? What's his importance? But during the OJ case, you know all the little details of the various personalities, right? Uh, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit, right? You, we, we even know the catchphrases. Similarly with the Lindbergh trial, people at the time knew who John Condon was. They knew his nickname, Uh they knew the name of the guy who did the forensic wood uh, analysis, and by all accounts, the guy who did something as i mean it sounded as boring as you know possible who did the uh, the search to to track down where the lumber from the ladder found at the you know, the, in, on the uh house where that lumber came from, and it 's like this detective story, this obsessive compulsive wood expert kind of narrows it down to a lumber yard in the Bronx. And by all accounts, this like riveted the courtroom for hours on end, this, this, this story. Uh, so print gives us that kind of comprehensiveness of coverage. Radio gives us the instantaneous news, right? So nothing can beat radio now for instantaneous coverage. And then the newsreels give us the motion picture, the visceral power of the moving image. And so gradually they all kind of realize we have our own, you know, alleys and you don't want to get out of your alley too much. Uh, The newsreels try to do things like reproduce the handwriting notes and uh, the maps and explain that. But what the newsreels are best at, at, of course, is the emotional power of uh, the testimony.
0: You know, and, and speaking of that, it's intriguing. You know, one thing that you're not mentioning as you're outlining these different roles, it's, it's like a whole different category is when radio was doing these reenactments, which sounds so fascinating no. to me. And they sound like radio dramas where you had actors reenacting the transcript. And is that something that um, had ever been done before or continued after the trial? It, it sounds really intriguing to me.
1: Oh, it is, and you probably know, or your listeners probably know, about the most ex- famous example of this is the March of Time, which was uh, the radio broadcast, which is sort of a, a, a thirty-minute uh, dramatization of the news of the day, uh, sponsored by uh, Time Magazine, and they go on radio uh, with this with this show. Now, unfortunately, during the tro- uh, during the original kidnapping in '32, the March of Time was off the air for a hiatus. Then they go back on the air. Uh, The March of Time is actually, I believe, uh, the first time uh, you had sort of an audience campaign to get a tele, uh, to get a a broadcasting show back on the air because it didn't do Time magazine all that much in terms of advertising revenues, but it was uh, sort of had this elite cultural cachet. And the people who liked the March of Time as being this, you know, educational newsworthy show loved it with a passion so they really campaigned kind of like you know star trek people or you know uh, you know whatever your example might be the modern one but i believe that's the first time that sort of audience protest had a show continue so the march of time when lindbergh or when uh, Hauptman is uh, captured does dramatizations of his interrogation and they had a special guy don weist who did Hauptmann. And so over a period like of uh, two years, he uh, sort, of, sort of identifies with Hauptmann because he's doing the German accented voice. And he actually goes down to uh, uh, Flemington, New Jersey, which is where the, the uh, trial was held, to observe Hauptmann's face because he felt like the muscle structure and the facial uh, physiognomy would give insight into the vocal pattern. And he kind of had this odd identification in the end with Houtman with uh, that, that he speaks That's about. So he played Houtman, you know, throughout the course of the trial. And there are a few of those available. You know, the, the, the one after Houtman's captured in September of 1934 exists. But I wasn't able to find any of the, uh, uh, the more uh, recent ones about the trial. The uh, New York Public Library has a pretty good collection of those uh, radio March of times, which your listeners probably know best be- because of its newsreel version. So after it becomes a success on radio, it becomes a uh, newsreel screen magazine in 1935, which y- your listeners probably know best through its famous parody in Citizen Kane. That's what I was getting. At, yeah. Yeah. You're going to mention that Eric. Yeah. Well,
2: that's the only, it's the only way I've ever, yeah. It's the only thing I know. Uh, Backward
1: Reels the Mind, uh, wasn't it? Yes, right. exactly. Uh, and uh, apparently- I got half of that right. There, there are stories that if, if you came into Citizen Kane 10 or 20 minutes late, which people were prone to do back in the day, you might've mm-hmm. thought you were actually watching the real March of Time, which they showed before the feature film. And that's, of course, Wells wanted to play with your head the same way you played with your head with War of the Worlds in 1938, right? To make you think it was real. So uh, Orson Welles uh, gives us the first great broadcasting parody with War of the Worlds, and he also gives us the first great, uh, what you might call, documentary in in Citizen Kane.
2: Backward you know? ran so mo-
1: sentences until reeled the mind is the, exactly. is the writing which, which is the style the that famous. they were mocking. That, and, yeah. uh, the, and The Voice, uh, right. I don't know if you know The Voice, uh, but uh, who uh, narrated both the, the radio And the newsreel version or the screen magazine version of the March of Time was this fellow called Westbrook Van Voorhis, who is the classic voice of God from any documentary you've ever seen. Right. Uh, It's it's that sort of uh, baritone of Mm. authority. And he really does sound like he's, you know, live from Mount Olympus, (laughs) Westbrook Van Voorhis, And Wells got a a member of his uh, Mercury Theater to uh, just give this spot on imitation so audiences in 41 would have had that radio echo of Westbrook Van Voorhees that they would have appreciated. Thomas Doherty,
2: you wrote a book. Uh, you're, you're the author of the book, uh, Little Lindy is Kidnapped, How the Media Covered the Crime of the Century. We've been talking about how from 1927 uh, through till the, the mid-30s, you know, the United States uh, m- media audience was hooked on this crime story how it was covered both as a breaking crime and then the police investigation as well as the trial the trial of the century they called it uh i'm wondering if you can tell us at all how this uh this story changed radio when when it was all over was how was radio different
1: well there are, there are two things first radio knows and we know that it will now be our source for Breaking news, you know. That's where we go. We'll no longer go to the newspaper extra, and radio has developed now a farm team of radio journalists that are now schooled in news. So uh, during the original uh, uh, kidnapping in 1932, radio is doing things that it had never done before, like they're sending out uh, uh, vans and trucks all around New Jersey, and you're uh, and you're doing through shortwave. Multiple pickups, right? So uh, I've got like somebody in Princeton, somebody in Trenton, uh, somebody in Philadelphia, and we're all going to be on the same radio show. And so the technicians are developing real expertise and just sort of the uh, the network technology of of radio, which will serve them in good stead for every story that we're going to be covering throughout the 1930s. And then, of course, ra- the radio journalist is also learning how to deal with inarticulate witnesses, uh, to uh, speak uh, to ad lib off the top of his head, to both uh, to master the story well enough that I can communicate it to my listeners and then sort of roll with the punches if something else happens, which, it, which are skills that we really hadn't had any need for before that. And so all the great stories of the 1930s are going to call upon uh, that expertise of the radio broadcast journalist, which is like a new phrase, you know, like they, basically they were just announcers. They they read stuff. But now I am communicating this to uh, my audience. And the other thing I think is the creation of this new broadcasting creature, uh, the commentator. Because one of the things about the Lindbergh case, and this is going to be true of the New Deal, and of course, you know the menace of nazism in europe it's not enough for me just to spew the headlines at you what i want as a radio listener now is i want you to be a guide to lead me through with your critical intelligence what's important i want you to explain it to me i i, I want you to tell me why i should pay attention to the munich Pact and the invasion of, of the Sudetenland, which i could not locate on a map but i want you to tell me why that's important and why that might disrupt my life in Iowa City. And a great broadcast journalist could do that. So, uh, you know, also in this tradition is probably the most famous of them all who didn't cover the Lindbergh case, Edward R. Murrow, right? Because that's why we listen to Murrow, as he could give us the emotion and the drama of the story, but he could also tell us why it was important. And so the radio uh, broadcasters of this era can explain the forensic evidence, can explain the trail of circumstantial evidence that leads us inevitably to the conclusion, even though there's no kind of smoking gun fingerprint that of course, Bruno Hauptmann is the only person who could have done this, uh, that the floorboards from the ladder match the lumber in his attic. They've got tens of thousands of dollars of the Lindbergh ransom money in his garage. You know? So basically if they find the ransom money in your garage, you're basically who did it, right? I mean, maybe the real kid <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe they came by and put it in your garage uh, To mess you up later uh, And so that's what these reporters Are doing the, the, There was a name Variety had for them That never really caught on They were called news savants <laughs> hmm. and, and Variety actually criticized them you know, I, At one point They said "Well, all these people do is digest the news And uh, uh, tell you about it And of course you go Yeah that's, that's why we listen to these guys and, and and the other thing, Eric, uh, is at their best. They also kind of are like uh, uh, maybe even avatars for us in the sense that they are communicating our pain, our grief, our shock about this. That they become surrogates for us. So when uh, when Bo Carter renders Anne Morrow on the stand, you, uh, even though I I didn't hear him. I've got a transcript and you can almost hear the catch in his voice as he's talking about how the, uh, uh, the sleeping suit is put on the table by the district attorney. And uh, he says, you know, I felt like screaming to the DA, take it away, man, take it away. So we don't have to look at it. And she doesn't have to look at it. And that's, and also, of course, the the anger that you feel and the need for vengeance. So, you know, Adela Rogers, St. John's at one point writes, and I assume she said it on the radio, too, when she looks into Houtman's eyes and has that moment of realization that he indeed is the kidnapped murderer the Limbert baby. She says, I'd go down to Trenton myself and throw the switch on him. And you know that 90 percent of America is feeling uh, the same way.
0: So the trial concludes. The and- trial
1: concludes. Needless to say. We all want the verdict. The verdict is announced uh, uh, on a a Wednesday night and all the stations break in with the live coverage that Houtman has been found guilty as charged with no recommendation for clemency, which is a mandatory death sentence. Now, oddly enough, even though he's convicted in February of 1935, there are a long series of appeals. Uh, Typically in the 1930s, you could go from killing somebody to the electric chair literally in a matter of weeks, you know, like indictment, trial, execution, 10 weeks. I mean, that happened. Uh, So by 1930s capital punishment standards, uh, Houtman gets a long hearing, but finally the appeals run out. And on the night of April 3rd, uh, 1936, uh, of course, uh, radio is not allowed into the uh, electric, uh, uh, into the execution chamber where he's going to be electrocuted. Uh, but we are set up all around the prison in Trenton for the event scheduled to be at eight o'clock a, a, a then famous radio broadcaster named Gabriel Heater is on the air at eight o'clock. It's this regular live show. They're told he's going to be, uh, Hauptman's going to be executed shortly after eight at eight oh five at the latest. Gabriel Heater has his copy ready to go. Five or ten minutes. No execution. And he has to ad lib for basically the next 50 minutes. (laughs) And apparently, by all accounts, and again, I don't have a transcript uh, or a uh, a recording of this. He ad libs perfectly because as a good radio commentator now, he knows the case solid and can fill 50 minutes with his expertise. And then he finally gets word uh, officially uh, that the uh, execution has taken place and he announces that that news Everybody in America is around their radio waiting for this. There were reports how at Radio City, they uh, actually, uh, patrons of the movie, went into the lobby and demanded that the radio be turned on so they could. They could yeah,
0: that's, the that's not surprising. And I was going to ask about that because I, I definitely remember during the O.J. Simpson trial that you yeah. might have had people watching collectively. Um,
1: yes. Yeah, people watched at work. Yes, exactly. And something very similar happened, particularly when the news of the baby is announced and there are accounts when the, uh, uh, you know, the electronic uh, uh, news script around uh, uh, the, the uh, uh, Times in Times Square and around the New York Times building that uh, New Yorkers are clustered together reading the news and they're talking to each other in a way strangers usually don't talk to each other uh, in, in New York. So, yeah, th- th- there is this collective experience, a sense of relief. And forever after, Gabriel Heater would be, a, you know, that was his golden moment, the way we associate, say, Walter Cronkite with delivering the news of the assassination of, of JSK.
2: Right. Or how Wolf Blitzer of CNN uh, made his career off of the invasion of Iraq uh, the first right. time around, which
1: right. was a and, live and televised are- event. Right. And okay, and there yeah. do seem to be these moments that we will forever after kind of associate with the broadcaster. So for the Edward R. Murrow generation, it's the London Blitz, for example. Uh, and uh, oh, I'm blanking on the sports reporter for ABC who did Munich. You guys. Howard you guys Cosell. No, 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 no. It was not Howard Cosell. Not Munich. Uh, but but Wrong uh, days. yeah, but uh, somebody in your audience is yelling out the, the, the name to us right, right now. Exactly. Uh, yeah, uh, and and they're associated with these moments uh, forever after.
0: And so, one thing I I sort of alluded to podcasts, and we definitely seem to be in a moment right now where true crime really captivates people yeah. in in both podcasts and on television. I'm watching a true crime show right now on television, like a fictionalized, you and the rest of America. I know yeah. fictionalized yeah. true crime. Um, yeah. So I'm curious how you know your thoughts on how that parallels and and how the coverage of the Lindbergh case and trial um, is sort of a precursor to what we have today.
1: Oh, well, the uh, you're right. It is a precursor because it sort of teaches us all the skills that we now have uh, developed and cultivated with true crime because uh, it, the Lindbergh case has a lot of different consequences. We've talked about the media one, but the other is terms of law enforcement. The FBI comes on, right? In uh, the Lindbergh case, because the uh, uh, the Trenton, uh, the New Jersey police were so inefficient that we realized we need a core of federal professionals that will come in. And what the federal professionals do? Well, they do what our true crime genre does: is they collect data. Right? They're scientists. They, you know, you know that's sort of what so much true crime is about: is about the forensics, the uh, the acquiring of the DNA evidence. The connecting the dots—it's it's, not—it's seldom about like spectacular murders, right? You, you'll see the legacy of the murder, but most true crime is in the process of ratiocination and the process of collecting the evidence that will lead you to uh, the natural suspect. And that's, the Lindbergh case the, that's wood, taught us that. thats the what? wood
0: expert. And <laughs> I'm thinking about yeah, your right. wood expert, you know.
1: Well, <laughs> exactly, like uh, and. Yeah and I think this is really distinct to true crime, and it's one of the reasons I like the genre, is that in most other genres, you always say, cut to the chase, right? You know, show me the sex scene, show me the car chase, whatever. True crime, the aficionado of true crime, really is a, like the detective, is sort of like this plotting individual who, you know, I, I, I want the 10 episodes uh, right. of it. And if two of those episodes are about following a total red herring or a blind alley that in a normal book or episode or a series, you're cut out. The true crime person sort of has to pay due respect to the investigation, right? And to show you how hard and difficult it is, and typically the the detective hero in the true crime story is not Tom Cruise, right? It's this maybe overweight, balding guy or a middle-aged woman, right? And uh, she's not sort of the romantic hero, right? Uh, But it's somebody who, through tenacity and following and just doing the drudge work of criminal investigation, uh, finds the killer. Uh, That's very distinct to to true crime. Uh, It's also the only nonfiction genre which uh, skews female. Every other nonfiction genre Hmm. is a male-dominated genre that is account. interesting i I, yeah. I need to test it now because i work in podcasts and i have demographic data <laughs> and i can think uh, of, of of some uh non-fiction shows that are not true crime and i suspect you're right but yeah. I, I now i want to i need to uh well my classes in true crime says. skew female and like you go to a true crime convention you know it skews female right, i'm thinking about uh, my favorite murder podcast
2: right now being
1: yeah right yeah uh And uh, you can multiply that repeatedly.
2: Hmm. Did we? There was two things. The two things. Did we get both? No. The second thing Uh, about
1: radio. The the other, (laughs) one of the other great media legacies uh, of the Lindbergh trial, comes afterwards. That people in the uh, and the legal profession and the judiciary and newspaper editors really felt that the sensational coverage of the Hauptmann trial had in some way distorted or besmirched the course of justice. People realize, uh, I think most people thought they got the right guy, they got the right sentence, but there was something unseemly about the crowds outside the Flemington courthouse. And actually during the jury deliberations, they were, you know, they, you know it took a few hours and the crowd was getting a, you know, a little unruly and they were screaming, kill Hauptmann, Kill! kill the German. And uh, a, a brick allegedly went through uh, the window. Of, of the courthouse at one point. And it was just seemed to, to not really reflect the kind of sacred judicial atmosphere that we in America want historically of a criminal case. And because of that, a couple of years later, the American bar association adopted a Canon, the Canon 35, which forbade the use of cameras and recording devices in the courtroom. And uh, that, Remained in effect for decades until, you know, the late 1970s, early 80s, when states and individual judges started allowing cameras into the courtroom. Uh, so, if you think of the famous court cases of the 60s, most notably, say the uh, the, the Manson uh, murder trial, if your visual memory of those is of uh, illustrations in the courtroom, yeah. right, or the Chicago eight trials, because. You didn't have live uh, video recording. You didn't have uh, newspaper uh, cameras as well. Uh, that starts to change in the 1980s. And one of the things I think is kind of interesting uh, is that, of course, the OJ case was broadcast live because that's a state court in California. And they allowed cameras into the courtroom. And right before the OJ case and the years before, there were a lot of people in the legal profession and media who said, there's no reason that you can't telecast the Supreme Court decisions, for example, or the Supreme Court arguing uh, or and, and cameras really should be in federal courtrooms as well. You know, but the O.J. case was so sensational, I think generally seen as a kind of not American justice at its best, that uh, nobody said that afterwards. Right. There are really in, in the last 25 years, there have been no serious arguments to open up the federal judiciary to television cameras.
0: If if the Lindbergh kidnapping and case had happened today, how do you think it would have been covered?
1: Oh, like a blanket, like OJ. Uh, because again, the one thing I think that is unique about this case is the emotional investment we all had in it. We all knew Charles Lindbergh. We knew Anne. We knew the baby. In any other case... It, our relationship is vicarious. Uh, and, unless, and and sometimes that's really good. Like, you know, I, I know a lot of women who will adopt, you know, a, a victim who uh, is lost and uh, has nobody to speak for her and is just, a, mm. a you know, a statistic. And they have a very powerful identif- identification. And there are a lot of people now on the web who kind of specialize in solving cold cases. But they don't have a personal relationship the way americans had with uh with Limburg, and and i think that's why with oj you had this element of celebrity sensation that because we didn't know nicole brown and ron uh, uh ron goldman uh we could cheer for oj run juice run you know that it, it sort of became an entertainment show that in a way i i don't think could ever be uh true of the Lindbergh case of a twenty you know, month year old baby that we all knew uh murdered did Charles Lindbergh or his wife whose name escapes
2: me ever Anne Murrow. Anne, Anne Murrow, um th- so they were the they were the you, know, you you Thomas Doherty at the beginning you made you made a distinction that Lindbergh and Anne Murrow are not celebrities they're 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 um they're they're famous elites kind of above the celebrity mm-hmm
1: well, oh, they great. did something to deserve their fame, especially right. Lindbergh, um, right? Did they? they ever, just weren't on a reality TV show.
2: Did they ever make? Well, did they ever? Uh,
1: did they ever speak publicly? Did they ever use? Anne uh, Limburg never really did publicly. Uh, Anne wrote uh, a series of wonderful memoirs. She's a, really a terrific prose stylist, and it uh, becomes a major writer, a philosopher. And uh, unlike Lindbergh, she had a real capacity for self-examination. And, uh, for example, Lindbergh never s- said he regretted his uh, isolationist stance before the Second World War and some of the anti-Semitic uh, bile that he spewed. We didn't and go did. there today. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and it's important because when, when we think of Lindbergh, we tend to think of the bad third act you know, the, yeah. his so he isolation. Was, he was an
2: America firster. he was a, he was yeah. not just a Nazi sympathizer, but a spokesperson for, for well, for, the,
1: for American first. And he received medals from the Nazis and, uh, an unpleasant uh, person where Anne is very admirable. You know, I, I really came mm-hmm. to admire and have great affection for Anne. She, uh, uh, had so many different talents, and she does write about the case in some detail, okay. of course, with extraordinary. But a kind of. But we never get rest- the Oprah rest- interview moment. No, 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 no. That, that that was just such a different time. Is believe it or not, there was a time when if something terrible happened to you, you were expected right. to endure it stoically Stoicism. and privately. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, Jennifer, uh, I
2: know you might have to go, and so I, I don't want to keep you. If I. But I I I wanted to keep, take this opportunity because I was um, 18 years old, 17 years old when the O.J. Simpson trial happened. I was a resident of Los Angeles and I was a very avid television watcher. And I watched yeah. television on the morning that O.J. Simpson did not turn himself in to the Los Angeles Police Department the day that he was uh, scheduled to yeah. to to turn himself in for the for the murder that he was accused of, and that. That was a really interesting, very boring, but ex- not not boring as in um, it had drama. But this was a live, yeah. this was a live televised uh, press conference on the steps of some government building, uh, or, or you know, they, I don't know if they said OJ that he has not turned himself in. That's the news. That's the press conference, and that was like a breaking twenty minute morning coverage. That I don't know how television changed that day just to tell us that O. J. didn't turn himself in. Now back to whatever weird morning nonsense they were doing in Los Angeles. Later on, uh a day later, a day or two later, the the beginning of the very televised car chase um breaks in the evening time, in the afternoon. And yeah, uh, yeah that same night. Yeah. Oh, it was the same night. I watched that on television oh, yeah. in a different location. No. Um yeah now we have helicopters covering OJ's uh, car fleeing police slowly live on television very long yeah uh, uh the the drama is is very tense but also very dull uh, it's this mm-hmm. drawn out version of of a dramatized television event it's real and then and then of course the the trial happened um yeah. which as you've mentioned was considered uh to to lack dignity, to sort of they blamed Lance Ito. What an interesting story that might be to talk about the whether Lance Ito deserves to be blamed for the the lack of dignity during the trial. But the the other thing I wanted to mention was how we we were talking earlier in the podcast how people uh, took went into a you know got a television plugged it in and yeah. watched TV the day that the the verdict was coming out. Los Angeles had just experienced a very recent memory, the L.A. uprisings, the L.A. riots, and there was a very significant um, threat that the same would occur, that the the city would burn again if O.J. was found guilty, which is different then but not dissimilar to what you were just telling us, Thomas Doherty, about how members of the public who were whipped up by the news consumption of the Lindbergh case uh, needed to have – the the villain found guilty or they were going to throw more bricks perhaps Mm -hmm. (laughs) um it's it that's i don't know i don't i don't have a point other than just telling that story uh making that well uh, well, i
1: think what you're talking about is that particular kind of odd live tv experience we have where the uh you don't know how it's going to come out but you'll be riveted for hours and that's a very different media experience than the one we typically got at the movies where it was a 90 minute ex- experience, you knew kind of when it was going to end, as opposed to the long unraveling you can have where you're watching. I mean, some people yeah, where you turn off the television lives. at night, you yeah. turn off
2: the television, not knowing what tomorrow will bring, which is not yeah. how TV usually works. Usually you get the ending. Well, the yeah. drama
0: of the live and, you know, I didn't grow up in Los Angeles where I hear that police chases may have appeared on TV more often Constantly. but that, but that's an interesting yeah. genre of television that clearly television news realized oh wow we're going to get great ratings when yeah. we show a police there's chase there's
2: a great a great story that I will try to hunt down for the show notes cuz I forget which podcast it is but somebody in podcasting in the last 3 years told the story of the husband and wife team in Los Angeles who invented the you know the the wife was a camera person and the husband was a helicopter pilot and they invented uh-huh. the live car chase footage market, which then took yeah. off later. Um, I want to ask Thomas Doherty about why Charles Lindbergh was a celebrity. Why did America care so much about a man who flies a plane across the Atlantic? It's hard to it's hard to imagine sitting here in the twenty first century. Uh, why one man would? Um, would mean so much to the American people. It's kind of, I don't well, think there's well, there anybody a lot before of, uh, since.
1: Uh, well, it's, uh, I, I, yeah. And I, uh, there are, the cultural explanation is that this is the jazz age. And the jazz age is a time of frivolity. Americans are disobeying the law. Uh, that, right. and because Lindbergh drinking comes is along. illegal and they drink anyway. Right. right. And Lindbergh is a callback to a different kind of America, the frontier hero. Right, he's the lone individual. He's young, he's handsome. He is doing this act of authentic courage that everybody thought he would die. I mean, really, that uh, there, there are stories of how uh, that uh, the, the the people in Paris uh, at the uh, the New York uh, Herald Tribune sort of didn't even bother to cover him they, the day before because they just assumed he was going to disappear into the ocean, which is what happened to two French flyers shortly before. Mm, so okay. i and if totally jaded by uh you know uh global transportation and you know uh, private spaceships and everything uh the miracle of air power <laughs> right. is something that people were astonished by in it was 1927. twenty seven it was only yeah. twenty years old and, well, yeah, and uh, 20, twenty years 20, yeah and
2: twenty years yeah. earlier it was uh yeah. <laughs> you could yeah. you couldn't imagine
1: flying across a lake let alone and he did it ocean. alone and he did it uh, he designed the plane and financed the plane himself so it'd be like if john glenn right. instead of just uh, uh, of just uh, uh, instead of being the guy they put in the rocket had actually designed the rocket flew the rocket <laughs> developed the rocket himself he's like a likable uh, elon uh, musk
2: then <laughs> like an elon yeah. musk with less uh, flaws with less flaws that right. we know about live if if Lindbergh had we'll Twitter, see- how would how would he have uh, evolved as a celebrity? Yeah, as a famous uh, person.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> and, and when he when he lands, Eric, and, and I, I guess people and when they talk about the time, they they uh, people really get sentimental. So, like uh, I begin the book with a quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald, who's recalling the 1920s. And everybody who call, recalls the 1920s is seeing it as this frivolous party and speakeasies and bathtub gin. And when they get to Limburg, they all, uh, you, know, uh, you know, Fitzgerald says, uh, you know, in the spring of 27, a, a young man from Minnesota did something remarkable. And we all put down our glasses and thought of our old best dreams and hopes. Mm. You know? And Fred Allen, the uh, the sardonic uh uh, comedian. He narrates, say, an episode of The Jazz Age uh, in 1955, a pioneering documentary. And he's sardonic and ironic, you know, flappers, all, you know, uh, prohibition gangsters. But the segment on Lindbergh, even Fred Allen gets a lump in his throat. So there was uh, something about that moment that uh, I, I think Lindbergh captured. And, and also, I mean, what he did was truly remarkable. And then when he lands, he's He's the perfect American. And the first thing he does is vid- visit uh, uh, the, one, the relatives of one of the French flyers oh. that perished. That's the first thing he does in Paris. So, of course, the French love him. He goes to Belgium, visits the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. The Belgians love him. Go to some London, uh, you know, visits Parliament. The English love him. Uh, he wants to, Lindbergh wants to fly back to America over the Soviet Union. Yeah, but uh, uh, Calvin Coolidge said there's no way he's gonna trust Lindbergh to Soviet airspace. He orders Lindbergh to get on a boat and come to Washington D.C. to receive the uh, Distinguished Flying Cross. So,
2: what a, it's a, a wonderful, yeah. It's it's I I really like the idea of trying to understand Charles Lindbergh, the the myth, the man, the legend, yeah. through a lens yeah. of of radio and a and a the american century sort of being young yeah. uh, it's 10 years or so after world war 1 where you yeah. know nihilism had become yeah
1: the, exactly
2: the, yeah the right. the watchword you know the the philosophy that everyone ascribed to so it's this interesting moment where yeah and the i love this idea of the individual such a you know self-made man the individual is very tall and yeah. blonde uh, oh well it's also yeah, yeah.
0: You know, I've been thinking the whole time it's also a technology story in the same way that radio is. Yeah. That, yeah. you know, he's heroic yeah, yeah. for this technological feat, of right. flying but, but the this techn- airplane solo. But,
1: but the technology was still manageable enough where uh, he could build it and design it, right, and oversee it. It's not like, you know, a jumbo 747 or something, right? It's like I can repair my toaster, but I have no idea how to repair my microwave, right? Yeah. And so it's still like your machine. You know, the plane, the spirit of St. Louis. Uh, One other interesting thing, and I'll shut up because I know you guys want to go, is uh, how Lindbergh rehabilitates himself during the Second World War, you know, because Roosevelt didn't want him to serve, you know, because Lindbergh resigned his commission in anger. And uh, when he tries to reapply for it, Roosevelt says no. But he weasels his way out into the Pacific as a civilian pilot and consultant. And ends up flying dozens of missions against the Japanese. Be, you know kind of because the Pacific is far enough away that FDR can't get word of it. And nobody on the airfield is going to tell Charles Lindbergh he can't go up in a plane. And he eventually does get a, a commission and uh, because the uh, the Air Force people say Lindbergh taught us all fuel conservation because who knows more about fuel conservation than Charles Lindbergh. So the pilots in the Pacific, instead of flying 200 miles using Lindbergh's techniques could fly 400 miles, hmm. which means you, you don't have to, that, that's another Island. You don't have to sacrifice Marines on. You no. Know? So he really contributed to the second world war you know? hmm. Hmm. kind of interesting. In the end, the, uh, the, the isolation is pro Nazi. Of course it was in the Pacific theater.
0: Yeah. What a complicated life. I mean, <laughs> it sounds like that could be explored for, um, a whole podcast series
1: yeah right
0: well thomas doherty thanks so much for coming thanks jennifer
1: and uh, eric and paul
2: well our thanks to thomas doherty professor of american studies at brandeis author of little lindy is kidnapped how the media covered the crime of the century today's episode was produced by jennifer waits my name is eric klein paul reismandel was there too was there too as an observer uh, thanks uh thank you for listening you can email the show the email address is podcast at radiosurvivor.com the podcast is available for free wherever you get your podcasts please do subscribe as they used to say in the previous decade when they were talking about radio on the internet the show notes for today's episode are online at RadioSurvivor.com, where you can find previous episodes of the show and listen to your heart's content or read about community radio, college radio, low power FM radio, podcasting as it serves communities, transmission arts, history of radio, and the rest. I think that covers it. I think that covers what Radio Survivor covers. Thank you so much for listening. We'll
1: see you next week.